We're in the Lenten season, and it's appropriate for us to be here in Matthew's Gospel, in this portion of this Gospel record. And it's amazing to me how God sort of puts all of the timing in place for us to be able to come to this place in our study that we began in January of this year, all the way through the entire Gospel of Matthew and find ourselves here at this point in Matthew's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ during now what is known as Lent. It's, it's a time, a calendar event as far as a church is concerned. It's nothing that we necessarily would emphasize except for the fact that it's on the Christian calendar as such. And I, I like to point out to the fact that we are drawing close to that day that we all will worship the Lord together that we all call in this room Resurrection Sunday. Most people call it Easter. I prefer Resurrection Sunday because that's really what it is. And we're looking forward to that day. It's coming up in April on the 9th. And as Sandy said, on the previous uh, Thursday, we'll be having a special service here uh, Thursday evening on, I believe that's the 6th of April. And uh, as Sandy said, we'll be observing the passion of Christ during that time. It's a solemn celebration uh, that I pray that you will all be available to come here and meet with us for that. But here now in today's Time together, we're going to be looking at this portion of Matthew's Gospel where he talks about the last hours of Jesus' crucifixion. We'll begin reading from verse 45. So if you'll turn there with me. Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. And the rest said, Let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection... They went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar. Among those were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. We'll stop there and let's just pray for a moment. Heavenly Father, we ask, O God, that as we look together at this portion of your holy word, that you reveal to us by your Spirit the most important of all that we have read regarding the death of our Lord and Savior and its importance, its relevance, its power, its glory. And we ask, O God, that you would fill each one by your Spirit here today to receive this word and to be blessed by it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 
We had seen in our last time together the number of people who were there, several of them named, as we just read, several of them just identified as groups of individuals, the Pharisees, the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin. Some were uh, uniquely set apart from the rest because they took part in what was going on in a very unique sort of way. The thieves on the cross, for example. One thief remained vehemently opposed to Jesus, and the other finally came around and realized that this one on that center cross must be the Messiah. And he asked the Lord, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Great, powerful events had taken place during those first three hours on the cross. Matthew doesn't identify the beginning hour, but other Gospels record for us that he was placed on the cross at around 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, you have to understand that the measure of time by Romans was different than the measure of time by the Hebrews. And in some cases, you might see that it was at the 6th hour, and others, it was at the ninth hour, and you wonder, perhaps, well, which was it? Well, it was both. Under Roman reckoning, we're told that based on that Roman timing of the day, it was the sixth hour of the day, but it was nine o'clock in the morning by Roman accounting. It was the sixth hour by virtue of the counting. I'm sorry, I'm confusing you. Let's start over. Rewind. The sixth hour was a reference to the Jewish time frame, and that was noontime. That was the second half of the time that Jesus was put on the cross. Matthew tells us it was the sixth hour of the day. Their day started from six o'clock. But John tells us that he was actually at the sixth hour in front of before Pilate. But he was giving the Roman accounting, which begins at 12 o'clock midnight. And so what John was saying is that he stood before Pilate at 6 a.m. Matthew says he was on the cross and at the ninth hour something very, very, or rather at the sixth hour, something very, very important took place. And that is what Matthew describes. He leaves out the timing of the beginning of these events. The other gospel records give us the details. Also remember that Jesus, while he was on the cross, said some things that are very, very important for us to perhaps remember. The very first thing that we have recorded that Jesus spoke on the cross was a plea to his Father. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. That happened during the first three hours, sometime during the first three hours of his having been crucified. And again, he was on the cross for a total of six hours. Somewhere in that period of time, in the morning hours, Jesus looked at his own mother, Mary. And Jesus wanted Mary to be taken care of by John, the apostle. So he turned to Mary and he said, Woman, behold your son, pointing to John. And then to John he said, Behold your mother. That was another saying of Jesus on the cross that is recorded in some of the Gospels. Later on, Jesus said several other things. One to the thief. Behold, today you will be with me in paradise. The last things that Jesus said 
were said during the latter part of his time on the cross. And it's interesting that Matthew notes, as do the other gospel records, that there was a darkness over the land. And we did discuss that last time, and I don't want to go into much detail anymore about what that might have been caused by, but it certainly wasn't an eclipse. We know that because it was a full moon, and the full moon would be absolutely impossible to be between the earth and the sun to form that eclipse that so some of them who have studied this have said. It's not an eclipse. It's a supernatural event. There are records in more than just the writings of the Jews. There are records among the Romans outside of Judea that recorded an event at this time in the history of men that seemed to imply darkness over all the earth. During that dark time is when most theologians believe the impact, the weight, the terrible experience of being separated by his father or from his father took place in the soul of Jesus. As he's on the cross, in that darkened place, crying out the words that we read this morning, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We believe it to be a direct quote of Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus, I believe, was pointing those who were present to that psalm so they would read it and realize that that psalm speaks of the event that was taking place before their very eyes, describing crucifixion a thousand years before it was done to him. They thought he was talking when he said, Eli, Eli, because perhaps his mouth was dry and they misinterpreted what he was saying, they believed it to be a call out to Elijah. In the Greek, Elias, very, very similar, Elias. Very similar in sound, but not what Jesus was saying. It's interesting to me that so many would find the words that Jesus says to be so absolutely of little value to them, and they take no time at all to find out what it was he did say, but instead give their own impression of what he said. That's still happening today. You may remember other times when the Father spoke to the Lord Jesus or to the crowd where Jesus was ministering. One of those was very, very obvious that it was God the Father who spoke clearly the words, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. The crowd heard it. Some understood it, exactly as it was spoken. They believed. Others said, It thundered. Can you imagine? The voice of God. And they just excluded all possibility of a supernatural event, and they said, Oh, it's thundering. It might have been a clear sky, but as far as they were concerned, they would not accept the possibility even that this could have been the Father in heaven speaking of His Son, demonstrating His power and His glory, revealing His Messiahship there in the presence of all those people. Over the course of my study in the book that we have before us, there are several places that I find to be most amazing because God 
manifested himself in such a powerful way. And I wonder if I had been there, how I might have responded to what had just happened. My prayer is that I would have fallen on my knees and said, Lord God, help. For I'm just a man and I stand in the presence of a holy God. The problem for the Jews is they couldn't stand in the presence of a holy God because of their sin. And nor could any of us. The only way that we are able to stand in His presence, in a place like this, feeling His presence, by the power of the Holy Spirit among us, the love of God known by us, is because we have this wonderful gift given to us that we have received. And I pray that every one of us here can say, I've received that gift gladly. Freely it was given. Freely receive it. The gift of salvation. By grace you were saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. The people standing at the cross who hated Him, who wanted Him dead, were rejoicing over these things. And when one of them took a rod or a reed and put a sponge on the end of it that had been dipped in sour wine... Some of your translations may say vinegar. Sour wine, it was a common beverage of the Roman guards. They put it up to his mouth and he took of it. And John gives us the account of several of the last words of Jesus, along with Luke as well. But John says when that event took place, that's recorded here in Matthew, John gives us the statement, that just before that took place, another word of Jesus at the cross was simply this, I thirst. I thirst. And it must have been that which the man, whoever it was, whether it was a Roman god or, or a Jew, doesn't tell us, had given that sour wine, it enabled Jesus to say the following, It is finished. It's actually one word in the original language, tetelestai. The word means paid in full. It's a business term, accounting term, writing off a debt or making the final payment on a debt. The receipt is issued, marked paid in full. That's what Jesus was saying, paid in full. And then his final words, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. His time on the cross was painful, obviously. Everybody should know that. It was torturous. But the most terrible thing, I believe, for the Lord during this time was in that darkness, he felt the separation from his Father for the first time ever. And I'm not just talking about since he was born of the Virgin Mary. I'm talking about his existence from the very beginning. He was always with the Father. He was with the Father from his early days on the earth as a human being. He always did what the Father told him to do. He always said what the Father told him to say. He was connected to the Father in a way that none of us can ever possibly know. And on that last three hours of torture on the cross, he was separated from his Father. I can't imagine that. 
I can't fathom the difficulty, the pain, the sadness, the torture, the awful experience for our Savior to have endured because He became sin who knew no sin, Paul tells us. On that cross, He took upon Himself the sins of you and me and all of mankind, past, present, and future. Every sin dealt with by Him, taken upon Himself. That's what separated Him from the Father. He didn't ask that question, why have you forsaken me? Because He didn't know. He asked that question so that they would understand. And you and I also. So Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. That's Matthew's simple way of saying He died. But He didn't die from the scourging. He didn't die from the wounds in His hand or His feet. He didn't die from the crown of thorns upon His head. He died of His own volition. In Matthew's, uh, in John's Gospel, rather, In chapter 10 of John's Gospel, verse 16, he says these words, Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. Therefore, therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus is saying that He purposely laid down His life at that point in time. It would have been 3 o'clock in the afternoon. On the day that is known as Passover. It was a time exactly that the Jews were to bring their sacrifices and the, the sacrifice that was done at the temple in obedience to the commands of Moses was slaughtered at that very hour so that it could be prepared for the Passover peace, feast that was coming that evening. Three o'clock in the afternoon on Passover, the day, Jesus breathed his last. Coincidence. Ha! Coincidence. My foot. It was absolutely necessary, essential, had to happen at that moment, at that hour, on that day. Paul says, says of Jesus, He, Jesus, is our Passover. Why would he say such a thing? Because that is what He is. Our Passover Lamb, the One who was to be slain, that was chosen by the Father from the foundations of the earth and before. It was all part of God's plan, His perfect plan, and it had to be done exactly that way and in that hour, on that day. 
remarkable. The Word of God is so, so very, very remarkable to me. You look at all the various things that have been spoken of our Messiah, and there are hundreds. He fulfilled all of those up to this point in His first coming. There are many, many more that have not yet been fulfilled that will be fulfilled at His second coming. But the fulfillment of every detail from His birth until His death, so meticulously taken care of and made certain to us through the Word of God that we can see they were indeed fulfilled. What a powerful statement this is to the truth of God's Word. That's why I can say so very, very matter-of-factly, without any doubt in my heart, in my mind, this is the Word of God. And all Scripture is given by the God's breathing out these words through His Spirit, through the prophets. All Scripture is given by God for teaching, for doctrine, for exhortation. for all of us, every one of us who has looked into this Word, if you have any doubts about that which He has done, you pray about it and let God reveal how it indeed is absolutely His absolute truth. Jesus died on the cross. That's what we're focused on today. He died at that time as our Passover lamb. Now there's something more specific in detail that is given here that Matthew doesn't really explain, but I want to take the time that we have remaining to discuss this with you. That which is found in the following verses. After he says in verse 50, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Matthew says this, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. I want to stop there for now, and let's look together at why is that a significant event that Matthew was recording. What difference does it make to you and to me? After all, he's talking about the Jewish temple. He's talking about a veil that separated the Holy of, of Holies, the inner room where the mercy seat was located, from the outer room that was known as the Holy Place. Now, if you are familiar with the temple, you know what that is all about. But for those of you who may not understand, try to picture in your mind the temple grounds. It's designed primarily in a fashion that resembled the original tabernacle that Moses built in the wilderness. That tabernacle was a tent of meeting. It was covered by animal skins and cloth. There was a fence around the entire area. And the people of God, males only, were allowed to go into a portion of that tabernacle area. It was known as the outer court. They could go in there, and from that room, they could see the priests and the Levites doing their work in offering all of the sacrifices that were to be offered under the Levitical system. 
further into that tabernacle region was a structure, still a tent, but it was separate from the outer court by a veil, a curtain. And on the other side of that curtain, all of the priests and the Levites could go in and perform the tasks that were associated with those particular things that Moses had spoken with regard to the details inside that enclosed area, the holy place. There was a table of showbread. The priest had to go in once a week and replace the bread, the showbread, with a fresh supply and take the other showbread that had been there for a week and distribute it among the priests. There was a lampstand that needed to be lit daily. There was a table of incense that needed to be manned by a priest every single day in the morning and in the evening. Those were things that were inside that holy place. But just a little bit further into that area was an inner room, an inner sanctuary. It was called the Holy of Holies. And there was a veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place. And no one could go into that Holy of Holies except for the high priest, and he only once a year. Turn with me to Leviticus, chapter 16 of the book of Leviticus, and it's a fairly lengthy section, but I want you to understand what they were required to do with regard to this particular room that we just described. This one very small 15-foot by 15-foot room contained what was called the mercy seat, and it was placed upon the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the mercy seat were golden cherubim crafted by gifted men. A very remarkable sight indeed, but only one man in his lifetime could see it. And then his son after him, who became the high priest in his stead. But here in Leviticus chapter 16, I'm going to begin with chapter 16, verse 11. We're talking about Aaron, who was the very first of the high priests. And there was a great deal of preparation that needed to be done to make it so that he was ready to perform these tasks. But in verse 11, it starts to talk about what it was that he was responsible to do on the day that we are describing here. The Day of Atonement. Not Passover, but the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement comes in the fall. Passover comes in the spring. But the Day of Atonement is a very important day for the Jewish people. And here's the reason. In verse 11 it says, And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and for his house, and shall kill the bull as a sin offering, which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hand full of sweet incense beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. He's walking into the Holy of Holies. And he shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, lest he die. Notice the fact that there's a qualification here. The high priest must be doing this exactly as he's instructed, and if he does not, he will be dead before he can proceed any further. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side. And before the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. That's just for himself. He's doing this 
to offer himself up before the Lord as the high priest to be accepted by God in the holy place. And if God does not accept him as a high priest, he wouldn't come back out of that veil. In fact, they typically would put bells on the bottom of his garment so they could hear him moving about within the holy place and the holy of holies. And if the bell stopped ringing, they had a cord that was attached to his ankle and they could drag him out because they would have to assume that he, he was not alive at that point. They were very, very careful to observe all of what they were doing, all of what they were instructed. Then in verse 15, he says, Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering. Notice that it was a bull for himself. Now it's a goat for the people. Bring its blood inside the veil. Do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and therefore and before the mercy seat. So he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the children of Israel and because of their transgressions for all their sins. And so he shall do for the tabernacle of meeting which remains among them in the midst of their uncleanness. They were unclean because they were sinful. This procedure, this requirement that was fulfilled by every high priest for many, many years, over and over again, once a year on the Day of Atonement, was necessary for the cleansing of the people. Turn with me to Hebrews. In verse nine, or verse eleven of chapter nine, the book of Hebrews. This is a New Testament explanation. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant and those who are called that they may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. What Christ has done is he himself, representing all of you and all of everyone who has ever believed in what Christ has accomplished on the cross, he took his own blood and in the tabernacle that is not a physical tabernacle, but the eternal tabernacle that is described here in Hebrews and elsewhere, there is a tabernacle or a temple in heaven in which Jesus himself went to the Holy of Holies and spread his own blood, sprinkled his own blood upon that sacred place for the redemption of your soul and mine. The difference between his act and the acts of the high priest that was accomplished once every year is this. 
He only had to do it once. It is finished. Do you understand what Jesus meant by those words? It is finished. He accomplished what the high priest could only do once a year. And that in itself was just a picture of what Jesus would accomplish. What they did once a year was temporary. It had to be repeated over and over again. What Christ did was permanent. It has only been done once and will never need to be done again. That's the power of what we see in Matthew's account that he gives us here when he tells us that he gave up his spirit. He released his spirit. His body became limp. He died at the right time as our Passover lamb. And at that moment, there was an earthquake and the rocks were shaken and torn apart and there was a great obvious supernatural event that was taking place. And in the temple where the priests already were gathering, having sacrificed their lamb for the day of Passover, in that very place, they heard, rip! Something had torn the veil. Not the one separating the people from the court where the holy place was. That veil was intact. They actually opened that veil so the people could see the priests performing their offerings. When the priests were in that place, there was an open court that they could look into, but they could not see into the Holy of Holies until this very moment when from the top down the veil is ripped apart, exposing the Holy of Holies for the first time ever. Let it sink in. God did that from the top No man is tall enough. It was 15 feet high. From the top down. No man is strong enough. That veil wasn't just a thin curtain like we use in our homes. It was a handbreadth thick. It was woven material very, very heavy, heavy and very, very strong. Bound together with a tight weave. It was very heavy for a reason. They didn't want the wind blowing it around. It was a permanent structure in front of the mercy seat. And only the high priest could enter in through the corner of that place where he'd sneak around the edge of that veil and do the things that he was needing to do once a year. Now, as he's about to do that, the veil that separates God from all the rest is no longer, no longer doing that which it was intended to do. I wonder if there was a little bit of fearfulness in the hearts of those men who were there. I wonder if the earthquake was felt by them. What came first, the tearing of the veil or the earthquake? We're not really sure. Matthew gives us the account that the veil was torn and the earthquake happened, perhaps simultaneously. But in any case, look at what they must have looked at when these things happened. There must have been so many of them who would turn to God and cry out to Him. Some perhaps wondering, why are you doing this, God? Others of them perhaps getting it. I hope you're getting it. 
He did it for you. That's why it's been done. That's why it was done in this fashion. That's why the evidence that he has given in his word, the connections of all the events from the Old Testament that we can make out of the reading that we just read in Hebrews and other places, these are things that we must see with our eyes. Even if we cannot see physically, let it be that you see it in your heart. Jesus Christ died on the cross just at the right time, in just the right fashion, just exactly as the Word of God said it must be done. These things are written so that you can believe. There's so much that we could look at out of these things and other things besides that should convince anyone who has an open mind to this simple truth. God's plan was being worked out through His own Son. And it's still being worked out today. It's not done yet. What was finished was that which was necessary for the saving of souls. That is indeed finished. But there's something else that's coming. And that's what we look forward to. That's what we preach. That's what we believe. There is no doubt in my mind, I hope there is no doubt in anyone's mind here this morning, that Jesus Christ is alive. And Matthew begins here to allude to that fact by saying what he says next. In verse 52, Matthew chapter 27, verse 52 says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after His resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Think about this. Jesus dies on the cross. The veil is torn in two from top to bottom. There's an earthquake. People noticed that earthquake. It happened. Everybody saw it, heard it, and they saw that the rocks were split. They also noticed that graves were opened. Now, in that area, graves weren't six feet under graves. They were typically carved out of stone in the limestone rocks in the caves nearby. And those graves were typically covered with stones that were rolled in front of the grave to protect person in the grave from being eaten by wildlife or keeping grave robbers out. They were heavy stones. They had to be moved by levers and several men. Those are the graves that were open. Some of those graves in that region, in Jerusalem, were opened on the moment that he died on the cross, exposed But what Matthew says is very interesting because he identifies the fact that those saints who were in the graves came out of the graves, but not until after Jesus' resurrection. Now, I don't want to get too much detail about Jesus' resurrection out of this study because we'll be looking at that on Resurrection Sunday. But what I do want to say is this. Paul had said that Jesus is our Passover pointing to the fact that Jesus fulfilled a feast of Israel, the third feast, if you will, is complete with Passover, with unleavened bread, and with another feast known as first fruits, 
Those three feasts happened in the spring. He is our Passover. Paul also says in another place, He is our first fruits. What does Paul mean by that? Well, if he meant that Christ was our Passover in fulfillment of the Passover feast, then he must mean also that Christ is fulfilling that which was spoken with regard to first fruits. It is a feast of Israel. It happens in the spring in that week of Passover week. It happens to be always on the Sunday following Passover. And Jesus was raised on the Sunday following Passover. That's why we say he is first fruits. So it's interesting to note what was done in the Old Testament scriptures written for our benefit in the book of Leviticus on that particular feast day. Well, this is what happens. doesn't happen much at all today because they don't really observe all of the feasts. But this particular feast was one of the feasts that they would observe during the Passover week. And it involved an early harvest. They would usually take barley, which was typically ripe by that time of the year, and take a small portion of that ripe harvest of barley and bring it to the Lord, and the priest would wave that barley before the Lord as a wave offering. That was primarily what was done on the Feast of First Fruits. It represents something. That wave offering, the early harvest, had to have been a reference to a harvest of souls. We believe that to be the case with the day of Pentecost. There was a harvest of souls. We believe that to be the case with the Feast of Trumpets. Yet to happen, there will be a harvest of souls. But this early harvest was just a small number, a very a handful, if you will, of grain. And I submit to you that Matthew is telling us about that handful of grain in this passage that we just read. Read it with me again. Many bodies of the saints had fallen asleep and were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now, some people conjecture that these men were just followers of Jesus that got raised up from the dead, and they lived for a season and died like Lazarus did, like the widow of Nain's son did, like Jairus' daughter did, and like all of the others who were raised up from the dead. They were resuscitated, but they were not resurrected bodies. I think otherwise, and I believe it because of the way that Matthew writes this. It says, again, they did not appear until after Jesus was raised from the dead. He is our first fruits. Paul tells us that. So he would be the first to have a resurrection body. These men, and perhaps women, these saints, were raised up, I believe, in resurrected bodies after His resurrection body and became that wave offering that Jesus offered to His Father in fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruits. That is speculative. But I see it very much more likely than any other explanation, personally. I hope you see that that might be so. The graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. So take note. We'll end with this. Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was 
the Son of God. These are Gentile soldiers. This was the Son of God. They had heard the statements that the Jews were making and accusing me of Jesus. He said, He's the Son of God. Let Him come down from the cross. Centurion saw what was happening. He saw the darkness for three hours. He saw the earthquake or felt the earthquake. He heard the words of Jesus. He put all of these together and concluded rightfully as a Gentile, not a Jew, this was the Son of God. Now, he did say it in past tense. He's a Roman soldier. He knows nothing of the resurrection. He knows nothing of salvation being offered to the Gentiles and the Jews. He knows nothing of what we know as believers in Jesus Christ. But I believe that perhaps there will come a day in our lives when we get into eternity, when we see that Roman centurion face to face. And I believe that he became a follower of Jesus along with many, many others. But he came to the right conclusion. Surely, truly, verily, verily, without a doubt, this is the Son of God. Does that strike you? to be of any importance to your own life today. All of those witnesses, and we talked about them last time, they were recorded here again, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, James and Joseph, Salome, the centurion and the thieves on the cross, the few disciples that were there, John in particular, some of the scribes and Pharisees who ultimately came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as a result of what they had seen. All of those were there. We talked about that last time. Were you there? And I believe we could simply say, yes, I was there, in the person of any one or more of those who were present. We have no excuse. Either we agree with the Roman centurion, this is the Son of God, or we walk away living our lives in total disobedience to our God who invites us all to freely come, to receive, to believe in Him. These are the last days. I believe that with all my heart. Things are happening around the world that have never happened before and they were promised in the Word of God to be signs of His eventual return. It's at the door. Not much of anything has to be yet anymore fulfilled. Or we might see the Ezekiel War that was prophesied by Ezekiel 2,700 years ago. That's a possibility. We might see the destruction of Damascus. According to Isaiah, that city is going to be destroyed in a day. This country is falling apart. Are you concerned about the failure of the Silicon Valley Bank in California? It's only one very large bank. 
for what happened to that bank can happen to any bank. If it does, our economy will collapse. Are you prepared for that? Does that matter? Does it change how you will live? Does that affect your position that you take with regard to your salvation? Are you going to trust God if the money system collapses? Are you going to trust God if an external event takes place, which is still very, very likely also? An EMP, outright nuclear exchange, a war with China, civil unrest, causing our country to implode, racial divide, all of the above. My question is this, if any or all of those things do happen, where do you stand with Jesus Christ today, tomorrow, and in the days ahead? Are you willing to risk everything for Him? Are you willing to give everything to Him? Because, friends, He gave everything to you. No man has greater love than this, Jesus said, than that He give His life for His friends. He gave His life for all of us. I hope that we're willing to give ourselves to Him. It's one of the things that Paul the Apostle says in Romans chapter 12 that we need to be mindful of. We are to offer ourselves up to Him as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto Him, which is our reasonable service. These are the things that were expected from a holy God who has done so wonderfully for us by going to the cross and allowing Himself to die that death.